This is One Universe at a Time. I'm Brian Coberline. Today we're going to go a little bit meta and talk about what exactly is a podcast, and specifically One Universe at a Time. What's our purpose? Why did we start this in the first place? And where do we think it's going? Today I've got a guest, Mark Gillespie, who is the producer of One Universe at a Time, and we're going to talk about the podcast. Well, thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, to explain a little bit about our thought process and what we're trying to accomplish with the show and uh, where it may be heading in the future. You know, we're based in Rochester, New York, and right. we tend to invite guests from the institution where we work, Rochester Institute of Technology and a right. cu- couple of surrounding institutions. We're finding our feet right now. We're, we're trying to establish a format and an approach that we think will um, add to the conversation about science communication. Right. And uh, I think we've done, I think, 19 episodes before this. So this is actually our 20th episode. And it's in summer break, so it's a little bit harder to find science guests because as soon as summer hits, everybody wants to hit the vacation. Yeah, that's right. But it's a good time to pause and reflect on on where we've been and uh, what the next year has in store. When you were coming up with the format for the show and uh, the specific approach, and Brian is the person who selects guests and invites them to be on the show, what were you trying to accomplish? The main thing I wanted to accomplish is kind of humanizing science. You know, you start with the statistics that says that only one in three Americans can name a living scientist, and most of all, they'll name Stephen Hawking. And this is a society in which a lot of people are actually working in science. The United States is actually big on science, regardless of what some people might think. And... For only a third of Americans to be able to name a single scientist and only a famous scientist is is actually kind of disheartening. And so part of what I wanted to do is to really convey the idea that science is more than just the activity of big name people. That There are a lot of people out there who do science and that the people who do science are actually just like you and me. They're, they're your neighbors, they're your friends, they're the people that shop in the same grocery store. Their kids go to the same schools as your kids. And, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize. And what I found interesting about the show, too, is that you will pick guests that are outside of your field of astrophysics. And when they get in here, they exhibit the curiosity and the knowledge of a 12th grader or a bright college student. They're not a Ph.D. in astrophysics. They're right. a Ph.D. in their narrow field. And that's what makes the uh, conversations interesting, both between yourself and your curiosity about what they have to say and what they have um, to ask you. Right. And I think that's another aspect is that if, if you look at a lot of the popular science popularizers, the impression that people give is that because they are quote unquote scientists, they know all that there is to know about science in general. And in reality, that's not the case. I mean, if you ask me about astrophysics or specific areas of astrophysics, I'm your guy. But if you ask me about chemistry, well, I'll go back to college chemistry. And if you ask me about biology, oh, heaven help us. You know, I have to go back and review, what was that biology class that I had? Because my knowledge is no more than than any run-of-the-mill anybody, you know. And, And I think that's something that's hard to keep in mind is that scientists are specialists. They're not generalists. And our expertise is very limited. And so it's good to have people talking outside of their field so that they can ask the questions and, and get a better idea of what's going on. And they know how to ask questions, which is another thing. They can use the framework of what they've learned about science 
to quiz you and, and vice versa. You know how to ask right. very specific questions of people to help them elucidate what they're studying and also to uh, bring the conversation down to a level where um, a general public listener might get something out of it. Right. Someone who's curious and trained in one specific area knows how to ask good questions. And even if they're stupid questions, they're insightful questions. And that's something that all scientists have. Another aspect of the show that I respect, that I enjoy being a part of, is the fact that we have a scientist in the host chair rather than somebody from my world, which uh, is journalism and broadcasting. Right. A, a lot of folks, very respectable uh, journalists, come from uh, either a formal training in journalism or long experience in journalism don't necessarily have a, a strong science background. Right. And they know how to ask good questions and they know how to speak the, the language of science culture. But you're a scientist. Why does that make a difference? I think it makes a difference in terms of how you're viewing the world. I think one of the things that science communication straddles is that world between scientific research and journalism. And there are some very good journalists who have actually taken the time to get a deep understanding of a specific field and who can explore the aspects from a journalist's perspective, but with the knowledge that, that someone highly trained would have. And there are some scientists who understand enough about writing and communication who, even though they're talking about it from a scientific standpoint, can, can work in many ways like a journalist. But there's this kind of big gap between the two. And there's a lot of journalists who write as a journalist but don't understand a whole lot of science. And there's a whole bunch of scientists who understand the science but don't know how to communicate it at all. I think having both perspectives is useful, and part of what I'm trying to do is actually gain more of that journalistic skill so that I can communicate better, but still from a scientific perspective. And, and from my perspective, why this is important is, you know, you read scientific articles, you read for pleasure, you're a literate person. I'm a literate person. I have things that I read that are very specialized. If you know how to read in America, you consume journalism every day of your life. Right. Journalism is the default form of written and spoken English in America. And knowing how to speak and write journalism is, I think, one of the most important skills there is if you want to have an influence on the culture. Right. There's a, there's a limited amount of time that people have. And, you know, when we write scientific articles, we give them a clear title and we give them abstracts and we go into the actual data. And journalism does a very similar approach in the sense that they'll have a catchy title and they'll have you know the first paragraph or the first sentence is the hook of what the article is going to be about and then you go from there despite the criticisms in many ways there's there's a value to that i think part of it is that in science in general as scientists we like to put everything cautiously and with lots of caveats we don't like hype journalism we don't like sensationalistic titles uh, and yet in a lot of the scientific reporting, that's what you're seeing. And in some ways, there seems to be more of a focus on the hype and less on, on what the actual aspects are. Um, when I was in Chile, one of the things we did was, was actually look at how do you communicate science? And one of the big things that was pressed was be accurate. You don't have to be specific. And in science, we're, we're very careful to be specific and so we can communicate something very specifically, but it's not necessarily accurate for what the audience is hearing. I can see that. I mean, one of the issues we've had with finding guests is they don't want 
this very narrow area of research that they're working on to be misinterpreted as a crusade or as you know this lone person who's going to cure cancer or discover a new kind of material that's going to make them a million dollars. All these things happen not in isolation, but as part of a, a scientific community. And it's really just a drop in the bucket. You know, their discovery leads to a solution. It's not necessarily the solution itself. I think the other thing is that a lot of the guests don't want to be seen as an authority for something that's outside of their extremely narrow field. Even though if you go slightly outside of that, they're still an authority compared to the general audience. Again, we like to put things in, in with caveats and cautiously, and sometimes the result isn't cautious. It, it's a robust result. We don't like to say that necessarily. <laughs> well, what are some things that you're interested in seeing on the show in the next six or eight months or so? I think well, the, one of the questions for me is, is where is the format going? Um, you know, when I started it, it was still keeping a foot in astrophysics, which is why you've got one guest and then you flip it and it goes back to astrophysics so that every single episode has an astrophysics topic and everything every single episode has me as an astrophysicist on it which i think in the long term may not be where we want to go in that sense i think it's we want to communicate the general aspects of science from experts and that may mean shifting to episodes in which it's not just about astrophysics and interesting, too, a lot of people come in and say, wow, you do that in astrophysics, we do that in biology. Right. You see that the commonalities are there. And, and I know that that's the thing with, uh, like, psychology is the idea that, you know, yes, psychologists could do the same type of physics as particle physics if you had a million people who were all identical and you could not have to sign those human experiment waivers. <laughs> <laughs> right. Psychology, when you get down to it, the way that we perceive the world, the way that we process uh stimulus, the way that we interact with other people, there's no more important science than that. Right. And I think, you know, part of the thing that we kind of lose track of is the idea that we think of science as being something we do outside of our daily lives. And, you know, one of the things that there are, there are scientific approaches to everything that we learn. And so regardless of what people may think, we live in a world in which the scientific paradigm dominates. We live in a world that evidence is the end result. You know, we, we don't have a medieval mindset where because Galen said this about human biology, well, that must be it. You know, we, we actually go and ha count horses' teeth, as it were. We go out there and we take new knowledge. And, and that view of what reality is has changed over time. And so we live in a scientific world. And approaching things in a scientific mindset works whether you're doing science or not. Well, I enjoy analogies, and I would draw analogy between you and, say, the local tennis pro. You went, you, you went and you got yourself a PhD, you actively do research, and you are like the guy who teaches tennis lessons. You won a few tournaments, you, you got really good as a tennis player, and so you're here to help teach other people what you know. To extend the analogy, the general public has a lot of benefit in learning how to play tennis and enjoy it and gain the fitness benefits, the rational thought, the strategic benefits of being a tennis player. You don't have to be a tennis pro to enjoy tennis. Right. You don't have to be a or PhD. Or football or soccer or anything else. Or anything. Right. You know, when you develop that as a discipline, you can benefit from it. What benefit 
does practicing science afford to a member of the general public, even if the person never becomes a scientist? I think one of the big fundamental things is that we live in a scientifically literate, we live in a scientifically dependent society. You know, one of the things is that in order to be a functioning democracy, in order to be active in politics on a lot of issues, regardless of what your opinions are, to have an understanding of the science behind the topics uh, matters. If you take something that like global warming, which in the United States is still controversial, understanding what the science says, understanding why climate scientists accept global warming and, and what evidence motivates them is important. You can still say, I think all of it's nonsense, but you're right you know, in a democracy. But to understand what that is, to understand what we mean by evidence and why we do things, to understand what we get in terms of the benefits of space research. Why should we fund NASA? Why should we go to Pluto? Those aspects, why do we do the science that we do? Not just from a scientific standpoint, but also for the political ramifications of that is important. And so being able to understand the science behind the research topics and how we approach things scientifically and what it takes to actually do research scientifically matters in a functioning democracy. This is One Universe at a Time. I'm your host, Brian Korberlein. I've been talking with Mark Gillespie, who is the producer of the show, about the podcast itself and where we should be going. Brian, you know, we've done now almost 20 episodes, and that's not a lot of episodes considering how many I think we have ahead of us, but three times different guests have asked one question. It seems to be a recurring theme. Uh, and I think it's part of uh, you know something that's become very important in our culture with the New Horizons uh, spacecraft approaching what we have long understood to be the edge of the solar system. Mm -hmm. Why is Pluto not a planet anymore? And when will it be a planet again? It, it is. It is the number one question that I am asked, and and it's one of those things that people who grow up with Pluto being a planet love Pluto. Pluto is their favorite planet. There's, there's an emotional attachment there that, that doesn't exist, I think, with any other planet. I think you could say Venus is not a planet, and people would not be as upset. They, they are more upset about Pluto not being a planet. And it is purely an emotional reaction in that sense. I mean, people, people get actually angry about this. And on some level, it's hard to understand because nothing has changed about what Pluto is. No, no one is saying Pluto doesn't exist. No one is saying Pluto can't be your favorite solar system body. You know, Pluto is Pluto. You can love Pluto and, and it can be your favorite object and everything's fine. All that we've done is we've moved Pluto from one arbitrary column to another. That's all we've done. You know, the, what we define as a planet is a completely arbitrary definition. And it's designed by committee, and, and it's been voted on by astronomers, and, and this is what officially it is. We could just as easily put it in, in the other column. If we did that, instead of nine planets, we'd actually have 100 planets in 10 years. You know, you can have one or the other. They went with eight because the eight known planets have very distinct features that are very different from all the other Pluto-like planets. You know, they're, they're rocky or they're gassy, and they're large compared to Pluto. Pluto is smaller than our moon. 
Pluto is smaller than most moons. You know, it's not a large object. And if it were close to the, you know, closer to the solar system, it would look like a comet. It is something that's very different from what we would say are the classical planets. But this upsets people. And I think one of the interesting things that it says is how emotionally connected we are to scientific ideas. We see science as being this this abstract and, and impartial judge of the universe, a way to find reality without deluding ourselves. And yet we have as a society, and I think as a species, we have this deep desire to understand things, and we have this deep emotional connection to the knowledge that we have. And it's been amazing watching the news coverage of the New Horizon spacecraft as it has approached Pluto. And we've learned a lot about how camera resolution works. Yep. You've got a couple of dots here, and oh, there's a bright spot. What's that? You know, And then it approaches, oh, look, it's a heart. Oh, how yeah. cute. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's been all kinds of internet memes about Pluto. My favorite was one which said, so um, you decided that you don't want me anymore, and now you're driving by my house real close. What's that all about? You know? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. We're, an- we're anthropomorphizing this this prodigal son of a planet that uh, we're starting to see for the first time. And we're learning amazing things, like uh, Pluto has a tail. Yep. And it, it has a tail. It has mountains. Uh, it's geologically active. All these things that we didn't expect. Exactly. And it's just mind-blowing. And as I understand, because of the way that the the data streams back from Pluto, because we're using you know 2005 technology, it's like getting the data through a 14,000 baud modem or something like that. Yeah. It's, it's also, it's so distant that that you it actually takes a lot of energy to get any a high level of transmission. So, so in order to conserve energy, the, the mission is actually slowly trickling back data. So it's going to be, you know, another nine or ten months before we get all of the data back. Which is incredible because it's like the gift that keeps on giving. Every day there's something new to learn about Pluto. Right. To file away. Yeah, me, for one, I, I feel like I'm a uh, moderately scientifically literate layperson. I know more about Ganymede and Callisto than I know about Pluto. Yeah. And, you know, the, the moons of... Jupiter and Saturn, and I know a lot about Mercury, but Pluto is just a total mystery, and it's a mystery to everybody, Yeah, even the astrophysicists. Well, and that's, that's part of it. With the New Horizons missions, we now have new images of Pluto, and it's the first we've had in, in a decade, and the Hubble images were the last kind of quote-unquote high-resolution images we've had of Pluto. That's it. And so now, with the New Horizons spacecraft, the, the images that we're going to get from there are the last images that we're going to have of Pluto for decades. Mm. That's for the next 20, possibly 30 years, the images that we get are the only images we will have of Pluto. And so every single news thing, anything we learn new about Pluto, is going to use the same images over and over and over again. Interesting. And so we better get a lot of them. Yeah, we have to get a lot of them. And, and, and you know, that it, I think it shows just how difficult some of this stuff is. I mean, we, we, we look at the triumphs, you know, of, and it's hard to kind of wrap your head around just how precise this engineering is, just how difficult and challenging this stuff actually is. And we're sort of in a golden age of solar system exploration right now. I mean, we've got... Astronomy in general, I think. And it, it's incredible. I mean, we've got um, rovers still roaming around on Mars long mm-hmm. past their 
predicted life. Yep. We've got uh, the the Pluto mission. We've got um, a, a mission that's giving us spotty data back from a comet, which is just yep. incredible to think about. We still have the Hubble Space Telescope, which has been up longer than its expected lifetime time, and it's still going. So there's lots of sort of buzz and news about astronomy and astrophysics and even quantum physics. Mm-hmm. It seems like that whole subset of science gets a lot of attention. What does that do for the whole scientific discipline? When, when you see all of these news stories in USA Today and on television and so forth, what does that do for people who um, might be inclined to call their congresspeople and say, you know, you really ought to be giving a little bit more money to the scientists? You know, it's it's interesting in in how science has changed in terms of it used to be the wealthy individuals that would do the science on their own. So if you look in the 1800s, for example, that's who was doing science. It was the noble classes that were doing science. And, and over time, that has shifted towards government-funded research. And the vast majority of science is done through government institutions. It is funded by tax dollars, and that's true across the world. It's not just the United States. There are some private initiatives, uh, but but the the heavy lifting is done by governments. So almost everyone on the planet has a horse in this game. You know, they they their tax dollars on some levels are are funding this, and and that's a fundamental shift in how we've done things. Another fundamental shift is how we're moving increasingly towards international collaboration. So, so it used to be that individual nations would fund this. And particularly in the big science, that is going away. And that's true even if you look at individual space missions. So missions to Mars, for example. Individual organizations are funding missions to Mars. But the whole picture of Mars is gained by multiple missions from multiple countries. So you have Europe, you have the United States, you have India now sending things to, to Mars. That paints a whole picture. All of the data that we have about Mars is an international collaboration. You start seeing large observatories that are not just you know, funded by multinationals, but now they're actually international collaborations. They're more like the UN than they are like competing superpowers. And, and that is really the direction that we're going. It is a human endeavor, it's across nations, and it's funded by everybody. And so as these images come back from Pluto, talk to me like I'm a science skeptic, and <laughs> that I have a lot of power over whether missions like this continue from now on. What is your elevator pitch? Why is Pluto important, and why should we continue doing things like that? It's one of the common questions that's asked. Why should we be spending this money? We know all these problems at home. And to me, the biggest thing is that it doesn't matter whether it's Pluto or whether it's something else. You have an organization, you have an effort that does a couple of key things. One, gathers knowledge. Two, fosters international collaboration in a peaceful way. Those two things alone make it valuable, period. And honestly, gathering knowledge is secondary. Because when you look at big science, when you say, here are international organizations that have to collaborate on an effort, both financially and in terms of their expertise and in terms of, of what their goals are, they have to coordinate large international efforts. I'm not sure of anything else that on a large scale works in an international effort towards something that benefits everybody. We look at, at corporations and the kind of, kind of capitalist movements 
that you will see. And those are specifically to fund corporations and organizations that are making money and, and, and doing their thing. Science doesn't have that. Science doesn't have, we're going to make money off of this. The, the point is, this is a way to gather information. This is a way to learn about the universe. And it requires everyone to be in this game. You know, you can either participate or you can be left behind. And what are the consequences of being left behind? That's that's the other thing. If it's not a disincentive, if I can check out of this game and it really doesn't affect my culture or my country at all, why play? Why play? Well, we we sit in the United States from from the aspect of being in in the dominant chair. We are used to being at the center of scientific discussions, and we are used to spearheading those things. So, so it's kind of hard to imagine, you know, in a year not being part of that conversation. But if you look at smaller countries that, that want to be participating on an international scale, they are deeply interested in being in this game. Deeply interested. This is a thing in which becoming part of a large multinational scientific research organization or, or a research effort adds prestige to your country. It adds uh, economic strength to your country. It allows you to contribute on a level playing field. It allows you to build alliances with other stronger countries. Any country that isn't going to be doing that is not going to be part of the conversation of human society. It is, it is a deeply powerful thing that we do. And, and it's hard to see from our perspective. You know, and that's that's one of the things going to Chile, when you would see the Chileans deeply interested in not just being users of astronomical observatories. They want to be able to not just be the hosts of, of observatories. They want to be building them. They want to have their astronomers leading research efforts. They want to have their workers playing on the same national, international level as everybody else. And, and this is central to what they want to see for their own economic development. And so when you see that, you see India going to Mars. Why is India going to Mars? Because they want to be on that level. They want to be in the same group as the United States and Europe. And it used to be that that level was something that you got with nuclear arms. You have a nuclear weapon, you're part of the big boys club. And now you're part of a major scientific collaboration, you're part of the big boys club. You're part of the leaders of humanity, and that's where everybody wants to be. And once those doors are open in astronomy, then they open in biotechnology, then they open in chemistry, then they open in all the other disciplines, because you know it's the same institutions that are collaborating. Right. And if you can have a great collaboration over a telescope, why not have a great collaboration over you know some other laboratory which is solving a different problem in society? Right, and that's one of the things that you'll see is that if you can build the lens for a telescope, you can build a cell phone. If you can build the communication infrastructure that it requires to, to analyze large data, you can have a high-speed internet connections. You know, all of these things have secondary effects. And, you know, the reason why we're one of the wealthiest countries in the world is because of those secondary effects. The fundamental research that we've done has trickled out into a strong and vibrant economy in many ways. And, you know, a developing nation wants to do exactly the same thing. A lot of these countries, you can either, well, give up natural resources, 
and sell them, and that's how you participate in the international economy, or you can build things. And building things takes an education infrastructure, it takes uh, physical infrastructure, it takes an information infrastructure, and the way to get that is to participate in big science. You've been listening to One Universe at a Time. Our podcast is produced by Mark Gillespie at the Rochester Institute of Technology with support from the RIT College of Science. I'm your host, Brian Carverline. Thanks for listening to One Universe at a Time.